Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we will be talking about schoolos. Are they effective? Do they really work? And are they mutter? Or alternatively, are they ineffective and prohibited? How could we even think that a skula would be prohibited? Well, we'll start out with a pasuk. Parshas Kedoshim. It says explicitly, Lo Two prohibitions. Lo nichush. That means Klali so should not be involved with sorcery, witchcraft, and also don't believe in lucky times. This is a propitious time for me to do X, Y, and Z. And we'll talk broadly about how do you judge if it's a school as valid or maybe it violates the prohibition of Nihush? And we'll talk about Mazolos also. The Mazol of the month of Av is a terrible time for us. How does that not violate Losenachashu Losonenu? More uh, likely Losonenu. It's an unlucky time. And we'll also talk about a number of schoolers. Yamim Noraim. It's not too far away. Buying Kol Hanarim, buying Mafti Yonah, buying Psicha for Ne'ilah. Schoolers for Parnassah. We will also talk about the red string that they give out at the Kosel and they sell online as well. Is that an effective uh, schooler to avoid an Ayin Hara? We'll talk about the Schlissel Chala after Pesach, the Ki Chala. Is that uh, really a skula for Parnassah? Is that permitted or is that maybe a problem of Nihush? We will talk about Mazolos in general. We will talk about skulas. Are there valid skulas for Parnassah? Shiduchim, health, Shalom Bayes, great children. And how do fake skulas catch on? We will be speaking with four knowledgeable, wonderful guests today. We will be starting out with Rabbi Aaron Spivak. He is a Rav. He is an author. And also he is a therapist. And we'll talk about the sources for the prohibitions, and we'll talk about some of the schoolers, and we'll talk about the psychology as well behind why people look for schoolers. And then we will speak with the great Posek, Rabbi Herschel Schachter, the Rosh Yeshiva of Ritz, the Posek of the Orthodox Union, and we'll talk about numerous schoolers. Do they have a basis? Do they not have a basis? Are they valid or should they be avoided? And then we will speak with Rabbi Dr. Tzviron. We will, instead of talking about numerous schoolists, we will go deep. And we will talk about two to three schoolists in specific, in detail, to find out more about their history and to find out about their validity or invalidity. And we'll also then conclude the show with Rabbi Simon Jacobson, the renowned author and lecturer, and he's also the founder of the Meaningful Life Center. We We'll also talk about the Rebbe, the Labambacher Rebbe, what his view and, and practices were on Skulas as well. This week's Parsha, actually not this week's Parsha, because we have two different Parshias going on right now in Chutzlaretz, a week behind in Israel, a week ahead, or just on time. And we'll talk about maybe neither of them. Maybe a Parsha that we'll be getting to shortly, Parsha's Balak, the second Klala, the second curse, attempted curse of Klala Yisrael that turned into a bracha by Bilam. He says as follows, as part of it, Exactly on point, Kilo Nachash Biakov Lokesambi Israel. There is no divination, that's Nichush in Yaakov, and no sorcery in Israel. And the Pasuk concludes Kaesia Merli Yaakov Israel Mapal Kel. Even now it is said to Yaakov and said to Israel what God has wrought. And that's exactly on point. Rashi points out, Klal Israel, they should receive bracha. 
They are not going to be subject to your nichush bilam, only bracha for Klal Yisrael. And in fact, it's ironic here that we have Bilam, we have Balak sorcerers. That's why Balak hired Bilam to use nichush to curse Klal Yisrael. And what comes out of Bilam's mouth? There is no nichush for Klal Yisrael. They are not subject to nichush. Klal Yisrael was set up from Matan Torah to be the example of to the nations of the world to not have nichush, to not have wishcraft, to not have divination. And that leads to the very fundamental question, what is admin? Why do we have so many schoolers nowadays? Indeed, if we classify schoolers as nichush, what happened? We are not being the example to the nations of the world to not have nichush. Maybe we are being the examples of having schoolers and nichush. So we will, Amir Tzashem, be talking about that on our show today. In fact, there's so many schoolers. There's so many schoolers out there, lists and lists, tens and dozens and hundreds of schoolers. Some are more common, some are less common when it comes to, for example, fertility and childbirth, known as the kvater, to be a kvater, a bismillah, it's a schooler to have children. But there are those that are less known, maybe a partially known, eating an esrog or esrog jan, that brings on an easy childbirth. Wearing a ruby prevents miscarriage when it comes to ayinara. We'll talk a lot about the red string, avoiding the ayinara with the red string. Then marriage, this is actually somewhat known, davening at the Kosovo for 40 days, consecutively going every day and davening, that is a skula for a shidduch. There also Rosh Hashanah, buy a new knife for Rosh Hashanah, that is a remedy, a bracha for Parnassah. There's so many, so many segulas and Amir Tzashem. We will talk about quite a number of them on today's show. And just to finish up the Divrei Torah, the Tam Vedas, Rav Moshe Sternbach points out on the Pasuk that we mentioned, Parshas Balakin Lo Nachash Biakov. he says, Nire What's going on with this Pasuk? It's saying Klal Yisrael is not subject to Mazolos. That's not for us. That is not something that we are involved in or subject to because the Kodesh Baruch Hu protects us from divination, from sorcery, from nichush, it's only HaKadosh Baruch Hu that controls things, and there are no segulas, quote-unquote skulas, we'll call it nilchush for now, that we can look to that has power in addition to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So that is what Rav Moshe Sternbach says, and that explains the balance of the Pasuk that uh, Bilam was saying, there's lo nachash b'yakov lo Yisrael, there's no divination in Yaakov, and no uh, sorcery in Klal Yisrael, but our address is simply... HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Before we go to our guest, let's go through the riddle of the week. This week's riddle is going to be from Parshas Chukas. And uh, after 40 years in the Midbar, we have the unfortunate passing of Aaron. We also have the passing of Miriam, but we'll focus on one detail of the passing of Aaron. Moshe Rabbeinu was told, take Aaron, take Elazar, his son, and go up to Hor Hahar, and take off the big day kahuna from Aaron, and move them, place them onto Elazar. And the question is as follows. There is a halacha, a requirement that a coin can only wear the big day kahuna when he is doing the avoda, when he is doing the worship in the Mishkan or subsequently in the Beis HaMikdash. And this is not a time of the avoda. So the question is, how can Aaron be wearing the big day kahuna when he is not doing the avoda at the time? If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, 
In America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, like that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's 02-372-0304. And now let's go to our wonderful guests. Joining us now is Rabbi Aaron Spivak. Rabbi Spivak is the rabbi of Kilas Beis Yehud in Muncie. He has been a mechanic for literally dozens of years. He's also a licensed therapist, and he's also, in addition, an author of three volumes of the Bright Beginnings Gemara Workbook series. Rabbi Spivak, thank you so much for joining us. Rabbi Wasserman, it's great to be here with you. Uh, so Rabbi Spivak, thank you. So thank you. We are talking about skulas, and typically people use the term to mean something that has a magical power. This is going to have an impact. I'm going to do this school, and it's going to help me in a certain area. And uh, my most fundamental question is, is that a superstition? Is that a superstitious concept that we think that this item is going to help me in life? And uh, what would you say are examples of uh, what commonly is done maybe in the secular realm and also in in, uh, in Judaism and in, uh, from life? Uh, what would you say are some of the more common schoolers that we have out there? So the comparison between segulas and superstitions is one that can definitely be drawn, but the the nuance and the detail of how the segula is implemented and what the practicer of the segula is thinking is really crucial to whether or not we make that comparison or not. Some common segulos that you'll see um, after Havdalah, many people will take from the wine and put it behind their ears or on their eyes in their pockets as a um, as a charm to bring certain good things. I believe in the pockets is, is a segula for wealth and by the eyes for, for wisdom and various other things. Um, there are other seasonal segulos. People have a minhag to put a key in their challah in the Shabbos following Pesach. Um, by a wedding, uh, many kalas have a, have a practice of giving out their jewelry to their, to their friends as a segula to be the next one to get engaged and get married. And I think in recent years, the number of segulos have definitely expanded and grown uh, to unbelievable realms. I remember one time I got a phone call, an automated phone call, what we call a robocall, and it was telling me to contribute to a certain cause and be entered into a raffle to win a coin that was held by many great tzaddikim. A coin that different various tzaddikim have held and touched and this could be mine if I won the raffle. I assume that the belief is that this coin would be some kind of segula. Some people have a practice of keeping a copy of Sefer Razil HaMalach in their homes as a segula that the house not burned down or various other things. And we can keep going. The list of segulas is really endless. So what would you say the Torah's view of schoolists is? Like, what would be a barometer for what's okay and what would be a for barometer for really what's not okay? Okay. So when we talk about the Torah's viewpoint on segulos and what's okay and what's not okay, the Torah really has some solid examples that we can draw from. So we know that in Mitzrayim, the Bnei Yisrael were told to take the blood of the Karben Pesach 
and put it on their doorposts. And that would prevent the mashchis, the destroyer, from coming in and, and killing the firstborns of the Jewish people as this mashchis did to the Egyptians. So one could argue that that's a segula. It was a segula of protection. What makes that segula really unique is that it was a direct mitzvah from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu commands us to do something, and we follow his command, and he promises us a particular reward or protection as a result, certainly that's going to be okay. Right? The words of Hashem, certainly, you know, we don't need anything beyond that. Right? Honoring our father and mother will give us long life. Is that a segula? I mean, you know, you could call it that. So when Hashem gives us a mitzvah, there's no question that that's okay. When we get into other things, like some of the examples that I brought up, so then we can look at a a Mishnah in Meseches Rosh Hashanah. Fascinating Mishnah. So we know that when the Bnei Yisrael made war on Amalek, Moshe Rabbeinu would put his hands up and the Bnei Yisrael would start to be victorious. Then when his hands were tired and he put them down, then the Bnei Yisrael started losing. And they realized that this was what was happening. So Aaron and Hur helped Moshe Rabbeinu hold his hands up and the Bnei Yisrael win the war. So was that a segula? Seemingly so. And there was no tzivoy. Hashem never told Moshe to keep his hands up. The Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah asks a question, and the wording of the question is amazing. The Mishnah says, shal Moshe osos ushovros Is it tenable? Is it a thought that we could entertain that the hands of Moshe held, made the war or broke the war, helped the Bnei Yisrael win or caused the Bnei Yisrael to lose? The Mishnah takes for a davar pashut, takes that it's obvious that that's not the case. It can't be that Moshe's hands being up or down were some kind of charm, caused some kind of magic that the Bnei Yisrael would win or lose. Ella, rather, what does the Mishnah tell us? That the hands of Moshe pointing upward were a reminder and a simon to the Bnei Yisrael to have bitachon in Hashem, to be meshabed libam laviyam shabashamayim, to, quote, enslave their hearts to their Father in Heaven. When the Bnei Yisrael trust in Hashem, rely on Hashem, realize that they have no salvation besides for Hashem, then we're victorious. And when we lose sight of that, and we start to think, things go the other way. And I think with that, the Mishnah is telling us something incredible. And the Mishnah gives another example. Even the copper snake that Moshe made, which Hashem told him to make, to end this plague of snakes that were attacking Bnei Yisrael, the Mishnah asks the same question. Was it the snake, this copper snake that Moshe made that's causing people to be healed or causing people to be stricken? No, the snake was just a simon for people to have bitachon in Hashem. With that, the Mishnah is telling us what the only acceptable idea of a segula is. If a segula is something that reminds us to have trust in Hashem and to realize that everything comes from Hashem, then that is a wonderful thing. If a person puts the Havdalah wine by their pockets as a reminder that it's not up to my boss how much money I'm going to make this week, it's not up to the stock market how well, how successful I am financially. My bracha in financial matters comes only from HaKadosh Baruch. And if that's what the wine by his pockets means, that's beautiful and wonderful. If, however, the wine by the pockets is a way to game the system, it's a trick, it's something that in it of itself is going to cause financial success, that is a superstition. That goes into the Torah's prohibition of lo senachashu, don't be superstitious. And it's no different than somebody who says, a black cat crossed my path and it's going to be bad luck. Or if I if, if something was said, I have to knock on wood or any of the other superstitions that exist in the world. Havdalah wine by the pockets doesn't make any difference. 
It doesn't make any difference if it's if it's a Jewish culturally related thing. If it's a belief that this action I take is going to call, have a direct effect on something independent of Hakadosh Baruch Hu's will, then it or it's going to force Hakadosh Baruch Hu's hand in some way, then it is forbidden, and it's part of the Isser of Lo Sinachashu to not be superstitious. So, I, I, two two points come to mind. If if the concept here, the the fundamental key here is the Chavin Libola Shamayim then the segula is irrelevant. We should be mechaven libo l'ashamayim, libeinu l'ashamayim, independent of this little chet eagle that we have in front of us, little eagle that we have in front of us. So that's that's a thought number one. Thought number two is I think typically when people think about a segula, they're thinking about the item having effectiveness in of itself and not that it's a tefillah to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, then that the tefillah or their thoughts should be effective. Right. So in terms of point number one, that... Why do we need the segula? Just have kavana. So the fact of the matter is, is that people are drawn after our actions. You mentioned that I'm a therapist. So one of the major schools of therapy is called CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And one of the tenets of cognitive behavioral therapy is that our thoughts, our actions, and our emotions all have an interrelated dependence. Each one of those three, our thoughts, our actions, and our emotions affect the others. So the thought of bitachun in Hashem, the thought and the emotion, feeling that emotional trust in Hashem can be affected by an action we take. So if I'm taking an action for the purpose of affecting my emotions to be more dependent on Hashem, then then that, if listen, for somebody whom that works, tavo aleichem bracha, right? If a person says, listen, by putting the wine in my pockets, that action, it, it fills me with a feeling. It fills me with the thoughts and feelings of emuna and bitachun. So... That, that's what, and, and you know, we find that Moshe Rabbeinu's hands up had an effect on the Bnei Yisrael's bitachem. This is a concept that we find. So I personally wouldn't take issue with somebody who said that, except for the fact that it then can have a Maris Ayan impact, that people seeing it and observing it may not get it. Right, you know, that, that is the chinuch of, of the Adam Nifal Kifipu Losav, the, the, your first thought of, of uh, that our actions do impact us. But but on, on the Marisayan point there, and 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 also on, on the point of but people typically look at the school as just a school, I think that's more the, the, the critical issue that we're talking about. Right. And what we find by that, very interesting, I previously mentioned the copper snake that Moshe Rabbeinu made, right? So for those who may need to brush up on the psukim a little bit, there is the Bnei Yisrael have spoken Lashon Hara about Hashem and about Moshe Rabbeinu, and Hashem sends these nechashim hasrufim, these fire snakes, vayinashchu es ha'am, vayamasam rav Yisrael, a terrible plague. And Hashem, and they come to Moshe and they, they say, we're sorry, we shouldn't have spoken about you and Hashem, please dive into Hashem. And Hashem tells Moshe, Hasei l'cha saraf Make your own copper fire snake and put it on a post. Actually, Hashem didn't tell him to make it out of copper, but nevertheless, Vayas Moshe nechash nechoshes vayisimeo ala neis. Moshe makes a copper snake and puts it on a post. Anybody who was bitten by the snake would look up at Moshe's snake and be healed. And this snake on the post became the international symbol of first aid, right? Interestingly. But nevertheless, this snake, the Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah says, had no healing powers. It, it was just an inspiration to have bitachon. But what happened to this copper snake? What happened? Surely Bnei Yisrael would have protected it. Surely Bnei Yisrael would have, would have guarded it. It was such a precious item. And the Psukim tell us what happened to it. The Psukim tell us, and the Mishnah in Psachim comments on it, Chizkiyahu HaMelech, Chizkiyahu HaMelech Yehuda, he had this copper snake in his time, and he was seeing that people were making a tragic mistake. 
And your point about people misunderstanding the Segulos, right? That's what happened in the days of Chizkiyo HaMelech. People looked at it as something that had magic healing powers. They, they viewed it as, as an independent, powerful God, something that had its own force, its own koach. And what did he do? He took this object that had the holiest source there could be. It's, it was commanded about in the Torah. It's spoken about in the Torah. And it was used positively and effectively by the people of that generation. And he took it, and without hesitating, he chopped it to little pieces and got rid of it. And the Chachamim were moda to him. The Chachamim, the Mishnah tells us, agreed with his actions. They were maskim to him, right? So when people say, how can I give up this segula? It's been a minig in my family for generations. Right? So I tell them, Chizkiyahu also had something that B'nai Israel had precious for many generations. But when he saw that it was having a negative effect instead of a positive effect, he didn't hesitate. So yeah, your point is certainly valid. So I say that if a segula is done and has the effect of increasing someone's bitachon, so in and of itself, it could be a good thing. And some people, like I said, are, are affected in that way and affected positively in that way. But then the thing to weigh is, is this something that other people are going to misunderstand or might even lead the practicer himself to think of it in a way that is not in accordance with our Torah. Right. So Chizkiah was saying then people believed it was effective in of itself. And typically when people search around for a school, they say, Rabbi Spivak, I need a school that works. Is this a school that, well, they're not going to ask you, but you know, they'll ask other people, you did the school and apparently it worked. Is this a school that worked? I need a school for Parnas. So what's one that works? So what's your take on that? Aren't they making the uh, the the same mistake that they saw at the time of Chizkiah, that uh, the belief that uh, it's, it's an effective school and uh, that's why they're taking it on? So I try to be dumb people the kafs chus and uh, say that does, it doesn't. It certainly the question certainly sounds that way. I remember um, I was once in a group discussion and it, somebody the Shabbos after Pesach was reminding everyone to put a key in the challah and somebody made that comment. Oh, do it! It really works. So I said Hashem works, right? This, the key in the challah doesn't work. It's Hashem who works. So somebody said responded, you know, tongue in cheek. Well, uh, I don't know how to put Hashem into my bread. So I said. Have kavana when you make the hamotzi, and then Hashem is in your bread. And you have the bitachon that your bread comes from Hashem. So then you, you don't need more of a segulo than that. Yeah, the bitachon you don't need the Hashem key. Rings, yeah, you don't need the key. Again, the key. if a person, uh, you know, says, listen, that key inspires me to trust in Hashem, yeah, you know, so, but yeah, you don't need a key. You need, you need bitachon and akadosh baruch if we can change hats, or actually, if you could change hats from uh, Rabbi Spivak to uh, being a therapist now, what do you think the psychology is behind people wanting a school? Is it that they want a quick fix or something like that? It's easier than uh, having Kavana and Davani, maybe. So uh, what, what's, the, what's the big interest that people have in schoolers? So there's definitely, you know, the need for shortcuts. People always like a good shortcut, a way, an easy way to get something that would otherwise be difficult. Forming a bond with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is, is not something you can do as quickly as you can put wine in your pockets or, or a key in bread. You know, the Medrash in Parshas Voeschanan tells us that we find that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is far but close and Avodah is close but far, Right. It pairs beautifully with a Medrash in Eicha that tells that Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya wanted to find a way to Yerushalayim. And he meets up with a young child. And the Medrash is extolling the virtues and the wisdom of the kids of Yerushalayim. And the Medrash says that the kid tells him, oh, you want to get to the city? There's two ways. You can go the way that's short but long, right? Or you can go the way that's long but short. So Rabbi Yeshua tells him, give me the way that's short but long. So he says, no problem. You know, you go here, here. Yashar, Yashar, Smola, Yamina. Right? And you're there. 
Problem is, is that path was totally blocked by thorns and other impassable obstacles. So he comes back to him and he says, where'd you send me? He says, I told you, that way is short, but long, right? It's, it's, it's Kitsara, but Aruka. He says, the other way is Aruka, but Kitsara, because you'll get there. Right? And what's the idea of that Medrash? And again, it pairs with this Medrash in Voes Hanan that says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is far but close, right? Because Avodazara is... You know, so the Medrash is telling us that even Rabbi Yeshua wanted a shortcut. He wanted a quick fix. The Medrash is telling us that was the problem of the door of the Chorban. They were always looking for the shortcut, the easy way out. What's going to get me there quickly? Avodazara, sure, you can touch it, you can hug it, you can kiss it, you can feel it, you can take a selfie with it. But in the end of the day, what is it? it it's a lump of stone. HaKadosh Baruch is really hard and challenging to form a relationship with. It's the work of a lifetime. But when you do, and to whatever degree that you do along that journey, what you have is something so powerful and so meaningful and so deep that it carries you in your life. Hashem sustains us. So it's, he's far, but he's close because you have something. So the idea of a segula being a shortcut, as opposed to the long, arduous work, the rewarding work of forming a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you know, there's definitely that element. But there's also another element. And that, again, I'll say with my therapist hat on, People have a very difficult time feeling that things are out of their control. Right? Anxiety is the worrying feeling that the future is not in my control. And who knows? And what if this happens? And what if that happens? And people are always seeking a way and a means of bringing the unknown into their control. And sometimes it's even an irrational way. But if I can just do this one action, which makes the outcome I want more likely, then I'm going to do it. If, you know, I'm really worried about my parnasa and putting the key in the bread makes it 1% more likely that my parnasa will be improved. So, hey, that's something that gives me a, a small sense of control over my own fate, my own, my own future. And sadly, that's the total antithesis of what a segula is meant to be. Because the segula is meant to remind me that everything is in Hashem's control. But it's used as a way of giving me a sense of control. That I have some power and ability to determine. And if we want to see that the Chachamim understood this, if we want to see that the Rishonim, and specifically Rashi, totally understood what the draw was of superstition. We look at a Rashi in a Pasuk I mentioned earlier. Sukim and Parsha Shoftim going through all the different types of witchcraft and superstition that people believed in and warning B'nai Yisrael not to follow in those ways. The Pasuk ends off, Tamim tiyeh im Hashem Be tamim. Tamim could be simple, it could mean complete, it could mean unblemished. Wholesome. Wholesome, right? Like Yaakov Ishtam, Yosheva Holim, right? Look what Rashi says. Walk with him with wholesomeness. And hope to him like And don't and don't delve in and, and try to figure out like Don't try to, to figure out the future, Asidos, what's going to come. You're sitting there, what's going to be in the future? Let me figure it out. Let me try to get a handle on it. Rather, everything that comes to you, kabel bitzmimus, accept it with wholesomeness. And then you'll be with him, and you'll be his portion, his lot. Rashi is telling us that the draw, the draw of superstition, the draw of witchcraft, the draw of all these things, is to give us a sense of control over the future. And the antidote 
the, the message that we're supposed to take, the mahale chachayim that we're given, is to let go of the need to control the future. Let go of it because it's in much better hands than our own. It's in the hands of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Okay, so Rabbi Suga, let, let me ask you, are there certain schoolists that you find are more problematic than others or are saying that it really depends on the kavana? So uh, it, does it matter or are there certain ones that are going to be really uh, more problematic? So there are some segulos that are, that there's a claim that they have a source in Avodah Zarah, right? Um, for example, the key in the challah that I've referenced a couple of times, there are those who claim that that has Christian origins. Now, if it has Christian origins, then if a person's is intention is pure and, and, and perfect, and it's only there to inspire bitachon and Hashem, it should still not be done. It still could be called chuko so'amin. Right? And the Torah says, don't say, How do the other nations serve their gods and I'll do the same thing in service of Hashem? No, we're told, So if a segula has a question of whether or not it comes from a, you know, from a source of idolatry, so then it could be more problematic. Now, I'm not making any claims to be a great historian on the origins of the Segulo. So I'm not going to say that somebody who does it is, is practicing Avodah Zarah. But there are definitely those who raise it. And for me, that's an extra reason to stay away from it. The potential gains are not worth the potential risk of violating the Isser of Lo Selchu B'chukos HaGoy. So any, any, such, any such practice that, has, that comes from questionable origins, I, I would doubly stay away from Right. And any schoolists with validity? Are there any schoolists that you do, for example? Any schoolists that I, that I do? Um, no. I mean, again, if we're referring to mitzvos in the Torah as segulos, then, then sure, you know, I, uh, you know, I have a mezuzah in my doorway. Um, you know, I put on tefillin, I daven, I learn Torah. I can't say I do those for the purpose of a segula. I do those for the purpose of, of the mitzvah and to come closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But uh, any specific segulos, I certainly couldn't come up with any to tell you at this time. Very good. Rabbi Spivak, I want to thank you so much for joining us. A really eye-opening and a fascinating conversation. And if I could recruit you for a future show right now, I'd really like to do that. Thanks so much for joining us. Awesome. And it's really a pleasure being here with you. And I would love to come back another time. Thank you so much. Joining us now is Rabbi Herschel Schachter. Rav Schachter is the Rosh Yeshiva of Reitz. He's also the Posik of the Orthodox Union. Thank you so much for joining us. Shalom Aleichem. It's good to have you on the show. So Rav Schachter, we are, we're talking about superstitions. We're talking about schoolos. And maybe let's talk with a, a basic question that maybe will frame our conversation for everything else. What's the source for the prohibition for superstition? And uh, if you could also walk us through what are some of the gudarim of what's prohibited, what's not. And then we can use that as a springboard to discuss various things that are viewed as uh, schoolos nowadays. The source basically is the Pasigan Chumish Onenu. Uh, we don't, at the time that the Torah was given, I think there was an awful lot of superstition all over the world, and the Jews were in the forefront of fighting against superstition. Barashan gave us the Torah and Shavuos, and then Aseris Adibas, and then all the other mitzvahs, and at that time we were at the forefront of fighting against it. Now after so many generations, and we piled on Minhogim on top of Minhogim, and maybe when the Minhogim began, they made sense, but uh, now uh, the Rabbanim have to invest whether they still make sense. So now it looks as if the Jews are more superstitious than everybody else, because we still hold on to old menhagim that uh, that are even butler already. Uh, what is the gather of los anachshiv los Ona means a time. Los means let's say people are afraid to do anything on Friday the thirteenth. 
people don't want to live on the 13th floor. So you have buildings that go from the 12th floor to the 14th floor. There is no 13th floor because they're nervous about the number 13. So we don't have any tradition that Friday the 13th is an unlucky day. So if a person uh, is is for that, that's an Isa, we do have a tradition that uh, when there's a confrontation between a Yisrael and a Nachri, uh, the month, the first nine days in the Chodesh of uh, the the mazel of the nachum is stronger, and uh, during during the month of Ador, we have a tradition. The Gemara records a tradition. The mazel of bnei Yisrael. If there's a confrontation between a Yisrael and a nachri, somebody once asked me, his daughter needed surgery, and um, and the doctor who was going to do the surgery was a nachri, was going to do it in the nine days. Is that a problem? I don't think so. That's not a confrontation. And the nachri doctor, the surgeon, wants to help out. It's not a confrontation. There's a dinimam this case, where one is suing the other, something like that, if they're adversaries. So then you say the mazal of Nochem is stronger in the nine days and of, and the mazal of the Israel is stronger in the Chodesh Shaddor. So that's Loisa Anenu. Loisa Nachem means a black cat to walk under a ladder, these kind of things. Whenever there's a scientific explanation for something, that's not Nechosh. If the ladder may fall down, uh, so you're going to walk under the ladder. So that's a hashash. But if there's no scientific explanation for it, so then it's an Yisrael loisen nachashu. I'm sure when the doctors first came up with uh, pills uh, for medication, so let's say I have pain in my left leg, so I take pills. So it doesn't make any sense. What do you mean? The pill goes to my stomach. It doesn't go to the leg. So that should be an Yisrael nichush. So, so the Gemara says, Kol Whatever works. If the pill works and my leg doesn't hurt anymore, so that means that uh, the pill goes to the blood system and the blood system supplies blood to the leg and it's going to heal it. There is a scientific explanation. I'm not familiar with it. But if it works, it works. Then there is a scientific explanation. But if something doesn't seem to have a scientific explanation and you don't know if it's going to work or not, then I think that's what's prohibited. That's exactly that's nichush. So there, there are two prohibitions, two isurim. One is losoneina, which is a, a time bounded. A, this is a propitious time or a negative time for something, a bad omen or good omen based on time, a day, a week, etc. And losenachashu is similar, but it's based on on an item or an event that would be viewed as something positive or negative, a black cat, knock on wood or something like that, that doesn't have a scientific explanation. So uh, it could be as we go through the various issues, we'll be talking about both of those, maybe more losenachashu, because schoolas, we typically think this is a schoola for uh, parnasas, it's a schoola for having kids, having good kids, etc. Maybe that's more losenachashu as loseonenu. I think so. Correct. Okay, so uh, on a broad stroke, when we talk about schoolas, schoolas are typically things that people think have power. I think that's what they they believe, that if I do X, I have a skula to have some benefit or to avoid something negative. I think I think so. But if we talk about, just to start off with one, uh, to get our, our feet wet, the red bendel, the string that uh, you go to the uh, old city, to the Eratika, and you're going down to the coastal and somebody's um, selling them or asking for tzedakah, and he gives you one of these red strings uh, to ward off Ayn Hara. Is there any basis for that is it is it a par thing to do or is it uh is it a los nachashu prohibition uh ayin hara itself is not the nichush ayin hara the gemara assumes is uh, real ayin hara i think means the following if a uh, let's say a, a person is not such a tzaddik everybody sins 
And some people deserve to be punished. Everybody who sins deserves to be punished. So Rashi in his commentary on Chumash points out from the Tanoim, commenting on the on the Pasuk and Chumash, uh, it says, You shouldn't deal harshly with an Amman or Yisayimim, lest they will call out to HaKadosh They will pray that you should be punished because you treated them improperly. So Rashi quotes from the Tanoim, that even though the person deserves to be punished anyway because he did something improper, but Akadosh <coughs> will hasten to punish him sooner if the one who is Ba'avot prays to God. Akadosh Baruch has been Maher Lehipareya when the one who is Ba'avot prays to God. So the praying to God is usually in Tfilah, or I see someone else is very successful. He has the job that I thought I deserved. He has the good-looking wife that I felt I deserved. He has a better parnasa. He has uh, more nachas from his children. So implicitly, I am I'm implicitly I'm praying to God that he doesn't deserve to be so successful. He doesn't deserve to have such uh, wonderful children and such happiness and so on. I deserve it more than him. So the fellow probably did do some Averis. He deserves to be punished for the Averis that he did. But because I am praying to HaKadosh Baruch here, I'm praying silently. I'm not even saying Bepeh. It's not Tefillah Bepeh. It's Tefillah Belev. I feel that he took the happiness that I deserved. He took the girl that I deserved and, and the COVID and whatever, the glory. So uh, I'm. So the Gemara says that... Uh, I think the Gemara says that Shmuel was a doctor and he said that most of the people in the cemetery die from Ein Horus, not from sicknesses. There is such 99% a... 99% or something. 99%, he said. Okay. Huge so percentage. Yeah, we assume there is such a thing as an Ein Horus. Whether the red string helps or not, we don't have a tradition, just the reverse. The Tosefta in Masecha Shabbos, the Gemara Masecha Shabbos quotes a lot from the Tosefta and the Tosefta has more. So Tosefta gives a chut odoim, a red string, is one of the things that's a chukasakum. All of these uh, sgulas, all of these, um, uh, all of these nichushim started from the nochrim, from the umasoilum. So the, a lot of times you'll be in violation of both loisa nachashu and chukasagoyim. So to sefta lists off, if you have a red string, that's a violation of chukasagoyim. Uh, and loisa nachashu, so it's, it's a two. I think so. Okay, so Shlissel Chala, after Pesach, as a school of four Parnassah. We have no tradition in any of our Jewish sources for Shlissel Chala. In fact, the people who researched it say that it's rooted in Avodah There was an Avodah practice, so for sure you shouldn't do it. I think that it's scandalous that Orthodox people, uh, they gave it a Yiddish name, Shlissel Chala. They gave it a holy name. And they use it for Shabbos. That's scandalous. I think it's outright nichush. Uh, so okay, so that's definitely something we need to publicize. The Torah tells us what schoolers there are. The Torah says if we keep the mitzvahs, if we learn the Torah, we keep the mitzvahs. That's a school of happiness. If a person respects his wife, the Gemara learns out from Sukim that um, Robert told the students they should be respectful of their wives. If you want a school of Hashiras, you have to be respectful of your wife. You have to raise your children normally. If a person's going to scream at his children, it's going to act uh, abnormal. Then the children don't want to, won't want to follow, uh, even when he gives them a good chinuch, even when he wants them to do mitzvahs. The father's a meshugana. But if he follows the Torah and the mitzvahs, then the Torah promises that uh, he will have atzlocha. Right. So t- talking about Ashirus, being a sandik as a schooler for, for Ashirus. Somehow, 
in the Shulchan Aruch, they quote from Midrashim, old Midrashim, that a Sandik is, is somehow compared to Haktoras Haktoras. And Haktoras Haktoras, the Mishnah, the Mishnah in Yuma, I think, has, or the Mishnah in Tomit has, that Haktoras Haktoras is its Gula Farshiras. Because the Pasik says by the Bicha Shevet Levi, that's his gula farshiris. And when they would have the um, the lottery, which coin should be every day they had a lottery in the Beis Hamikdash, which coin should be marked to the k'tores. So the Mishnah has the expression chadashim lektores bo when they made the pious, the lottery. So they asked, this lottery is only for people who didn't yet have a chance to be maktuktaris because they wanted to spread the wealth. Aktaris, aktaris is its gulavashir, based on the posse. So the Midrashim have, I think, based on Pesukim and Tehillim, Midrashim have that the different parts of the body do different mitzvahs. So the lap does the mitzvah of Sandekois, and the Midrashim say somehow that Sandekois is, is compared to Ktoris. So since Ktoris is his gula for Hashiris, the Sandekois is his gula for Hashiris. I remember one year um, after Absalvechik had his uh, cancer surgery, so the doctor told him he has to take it easy. In the earlier years, uh, Rabbi Salvechik used to come in on Tuesday morning and he used to give a two-hour shear for the Smicha students and two-hour shear for the college students and a different assistant. Then Tuesday night he gave a shear for the Balabatim and Maria at 8 o'clock. And then on Wednesday morning he gave again two-hour shear on, for the Smicha students, two-hour shear for the college students, different, different Mesichtas. And Maria was a different Mesichta and, in, and for the college students, for the Smicha students. So then the, uh, say after we had a surgery, so the doctor told me she'd only give one shear and she'd pick an easy topic. So the next year, the shear was on Hilchas Arachaim, Hilchas Kriyas Atar, Hilchas Tzitzis, Hilchas Tvilin, and Mishnais Chalam. And that kept us busy a whole year. So I remember when we were learning Hilchas Kriyas Atar, so they say that um, if a Balbris is there, so the Balbris should get an Ali. Who's a Balbris? Avia Ben, the Moel, or the Sandik? So Rabbi said he doesn't understand. Avia Ben is Mechuyiv, and, and the Moel is going to do the mitzvah. What's the Sandik? The Sandik Alpidin doesn't represent anything. So Rabbi Herschel Shecht is the one who was the uh, chaplain in the American army during the Second World War the chaplain who came, who liberated Buchenwald. So he said, he said, but Rebbe, it says in the Tzvarim, that's a Zgula Farshiris. So he said, I don't know, I've been a Santek many times. I didn't strike it rich. He doesn't know if it's Zgula Farshiris. So then Rabbi Herschel Shechter said, no, but it says in the Tzvarim that Hashiris for each person is different. So one who's interested in money, says Zgula Farshiris money. One who's interested in learning, will get Hashiris and learning. So he said, you were Zechet to the Hashiris. No, no, but the Midrashim somehow say like that, that the lap is the lap, that part of the body is used to serve as Sandik. And Midrashim have this idea that the, that the Sandik is somehow compared to the one as Maktuktaris. And Ktaris and the Pusik is as Gul of Hashiris. Okay, at least we have some source for that. So as long as we have sources, it sounds like uh, the, the nine days w- would otherwise be a problem of Lo Sohenenu, but we have a source for it. And uh, and the Sandek, as a Shiras, at least we have a Makor for it. So as long as we have a Makor, that, then we're in, in safe water, but uh, things that we don't have a, a Makor. And I would think that uh, a, a Makor, if it's more recent in the past couple hundred years ago, because school is, uh, did get created more recently, is that going to be problematic or is that considered a Makor? I would think it is problematic. What do they have? How do they know that what's a school of 
Chashiras. Whatever it says in the Gemara, the old Midrashim. Okay, so those are sources. Right, right. So a kvater as a schooler to have children. I did hear once that kvater is from also the Lashon of, of Ktores, kvater, Ktores, that it's also a, a, a schooler. So is that is that have a basis or is that because a kvater, you know, they call the kvater to come and uh, you call people typically who were in Zoha for children or were looking to have more children. Is that a, is there a basis to that or is that a problem of... Uh, I think the Bartanura Mishnayis Bikurim comments, the Mishnah says when the farmers, when the pilgrims would come with their Bikurim, walking through Yerushalayim, going to the Harbais, the base, I mean, everybody would stand up. Why are they standing up? They're farmers, they're not so learned. No, because Mavie Bikurim, they're in the process of doing a mitzvah. So the Bartanura said that's why when the Kvata brings in the baby for the bris, everybody stands up, not out of respect for the baby, the baby didn't do anything yet, out of respect for the Kvata, he's bringing the baby to perform a mitzvah. Well, that's why you stand up and the Chavik Kadisha bring in a nifter when they're going to say has paid and we never stood up for the nifter when he was alive. Why do we all of a sudden stand up now that he's not alive? The answer, we're not standing up for the nifter, we're standing up for the Chavik Kadisha who are doing a mitzvah. So the Kvater is doing a mitzvah with respect to little babies. He's participating, he's bringing the baby to have the bris milo. So if a person is medactic in a certain mitzvah, so that's a, probably a schooler that he should uh, be zeichet to be mekayim that mitzvah. Right. My impression is that the kvater is not the Milosh and Ktaris. I think it's from Godfather, Godfather. I think oh, interesting. from Germany. Yeah. I think so. All right. So let's take a step back because we've been talking about once the baby was born. How about uh, right before the baby is born, the skula for the husband to open the Aaron Kodesh Tabsicha when his wife is in the ninth month? I don't know if the people say it's a skula. It's based on the davening. That Anisha Chachama is a woman who's in labor. So when the wife is about to go into labor, the husband should open up. That's a chidok quotes like that. I don't know if it if it's supposed to be a skula for, for having a good, uh, doing any mitzvah, says gula. So he opens up the Ankaidish. It's just, uh, they have to figure out kibudim. So they had a line in the davening, I don't know it's, if it's specifically a skula for uh, having an easy labor. I don't know if that's the tradition. Right. It's Certainly, not, uh, I think it's pretty widespread, but uh, maybe it's not, uh, shouldn't be done. But uh, um, people think that that's, uh, that has the benefits. So, so, uh, Cutting nails, not cutting nails in order, uh, not cutting the hands and foot nails on the same day. Is this in the same category as what we're talking about? Or is that a different issue? I don't think so. I think that was introduced. They didn't have nail cutters. So they had to cut the nails with a knife. So that's not so safe. You can cut your fingers. So they said, you have to be careful. So you're going to get exhausted if you're going to do the toenails and the fingernails on the same day. Or you should skip every other one. Why? It's safer. I think they felt that it's safer like that. I think they felt that there was a scientific reason. But now that you have, uh, they quote uh, the later, Achreinim say that you don't have to be mocked on that. Now we have specially, now we have special nail cutters. So it's not so difficult, not so hard to cut your nails. So that wouldn't apply anymore. Um, doesn't apply, and even when it did apply, it wasn't a uh, school. It was it was intended to be with a scientific explanation that is too complicated to cut your nails. Both all the all the twenty nails on the same day, so you cut toenails on one day and the fingernails on the other day. You do other other every other finger not to harm yourself. I think. 
Right. Uh, checking mezuzahs when anything, uh, when anytime something negative may happen, if somebody is having various challenges, we say check the mezuzahs. Is is there there's some connection between between having a psul and a mezuzah and uh, challenges, negative things happening to some somebody, and is that fall in the realm of a skula when we think just by virtue of fixing the mezuzahs that's going to take care of the problem? I think that's mentioned in the Shulchan Aruch proper, if I'm not mistaken. I think Rabbi Yesu Kara quotes it based on the Pesach in Mezuzah. It says, If you fulfill a mitzvah mezuzah, like when you do mitzvahs, then it's a zgula. But it says that putting up a kosher mezuzah is a zgula. So if there's a problem with the health of the parents or the children, so you should check the mezuzah because that the chumash promises. I think that's based on the chumash. Okay, the goral hagra in making decisions, open up the chumash, make a decision right. based. Right. So in the days of the Amoroim, you have the, when people had to make a decision, they didn't know what to base the decision on. So we'd ask a young child who was learning chumash. The Mishnah has in Pirkei between the age of five and ten, you teach the children Chumash. Chumash l'mikra b'nesel Mishnah. So they would ask him, P'sok li p'sukecha. So whatever Pasuk the child would say, so the one who was asking would try to see, is there an answer to the question that he has? So the Kesef Mishnah on the side of the Ramah, Rabbi Yosef Karo, has in his commentary on the side of the Rambam, and the Ramah quotes the dinam of Nichush, so he asked, how are you allowed to do that? P'sok li p'sukecha. So he quotes, I think the Ran, I think it's the Ran on the Rif in 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 Masechus Chulin, if I'm not mistaken, that the Ran says the Tanakh was given to us to guide us, to teach us how to lead our lives. So that's why the Tanaim, the Amoraim, Tanaim and Amoraim felt Psotli Psukecha is a legitimate way of uh, making decisions. That's the Goralagra also, you open up a Tanakh. But by uh, some people, by Lubavitch, They'll open up the igris. They'll open up the letters of the Rebbe. And whatever page, whatever page uh, they'll open up to, so they'll assume that that gives them the right answer. So that, we never had that. It's only Pesachlik, Pesachlik is only on Tanakh. You never find on Mishnayis or on Gemaris. They never said like that, only on Tanakh. If you do on Gemara, I think that would be an Isa Nichush. Mm-hmm. We had a neighbor uh, on vacation. We had a neighbor who was a Lubavitcher, and she was telling my wife that she had to make a decision whether they were going to go to Tannersville for the summer or go somewhere else. So she didn't have a collection of igres letters from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, but she had a cookbook. So she put a, a piece of paper in the cookbook, and she went to sleep, and the next morning she opened it up, and it was on the page with a blueberry pie. And she said, that's it, we're going to Tannisville because she only makes blueberry pie in Tannisville. So that's utterly ridiculous. That's mamish ridiculous. You make a decision based on where you put the paper in the, in the cookbook. But it even, takes, it, it takes it, Ruach HaKodesh. Yeah, yeah. But even if it would be the Igris, the Igris is, is not more Choshev than the Gemara, not more Choshev than the Shulchan Aruch and the Mishnayis. This is only in Tanakh. The case of Mishnah quotes the Ran on the Rift. That's only in Tanakh. He said, Psokli Psukecha. Okay, so uh, reading fortune cookies. You go out to a Chinese restaurant and they have these fortune cookies. You crack them open and they have these little pieces of paper that tell you your fortune. It, would that be problematic even just doing it? Or only if you have the Kavana, maybe it's going to really tell me what my future holds, holds for me. 
my impression is that everybody thinks it's a joke. The one who does it does it as a as a joke to get a good laugh. I don't think anybody places any significance to those pieces of paper. I don't think so, that's an Anissa. So, so, so yeah. Yeah, so by definition, then, a school is when you have belief in the action you're taking that it will have a positive impact, kind of independent of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. This is this in of itself, doing this act will have a positive impact on me. I think so. Okay. So, so fortune cookies, as long as it's for fun, then uh, then that would be okay. The Aliyah, buying the Aliyah for Kol Hanarim. Maybe there's a different, I'll group them together. Kol Hanarim, Maftir Yona, and Psicha for Ni'ila. Maybe those are treated the same or differently in the various schoolas for Ashirus and uh, Hatzlacha. Is that problematic or is that not problematic? Whenever you give Tzdokah, the Gemara says, when you give Tzdokah, it's a school of Ashirus. Aser, Tiaser, Aser, Bishul, Shetis, Asher. It's always a school. So that whenever you get a Kibbut and Shul, whenever they're auctioning off Kibbutim and you're donating money to the Shul, that's a mitzvah of tzedakah. It's tzedakah to anim, it's tzedakah to yeshivas, and tzedakah to Beisach Nessus, tzedakah to hospital. This is all tzedakah. So uh, it is a school. Tzedakah is always a school for all wonderful things. If, if you just donate tzedakah and don't buy the kolonarim after Yonah Psicha for Neila, same thing. Same thing. Okay, putting a note in the kosal, is that just a tefillah or people think that there's a school associated with that? And if so, it's problematic. No, I don't think there's any school. Have a tefillah. Okay. Okay, tefillah of the shlah. For wealth, for example, if people uh, have the belief that there is a special school of staying this tefillah as opposed to another tefillah, is that going to be nichush or is that not nichush? Tefillah works. We believe in tefillah. We believe in tefillah. So uh, a lot of times a person will compose a tefillah he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's asking HaKadosh Baruch Hu for something ridiculous. Or he's praising HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The Gemara says, the Anchekness HaGdoyla was a body that consists of 120 Chachamim, Ubehem Kamenevim, and amongst them are several prophets. And they were the ones who composed all the tefillahs. So Rabchaim Balozhaner writes in Nefesh Achaim, why did the Gemara say Behem Kamenevim? What's the significance of that line? He says, to compose a tefillah, Anchekness HaGdoyla was the beginning of the Baisheni period. That was, uh, according to the Goisha history books, that was over 2,500 years ago. It's a long time ago, so they composed the tefillah, most of which remained the same. Some of it we changed because we don't have a day samigdash. We had to change some of the brachas. Most of it remained the same. So the Gemara says you have to have a koyach of nevuah, koyach to know how to compose a tefillah. Sometimes a person will praise a kodesh bochu and he'll say ridiculous things. So the Gemara gives a marshal that uh, the farmer has no hasog of wealth. The farmer is going to praise the king. The king is so wealthy, he has $150 in his bank account. What's the big deal? $150 is nothing. So a lot of times we, a lot of times we don't know what to pray for. We say silly things also. That's what we say. Should filter out our prayers. He should only accept those that make sense. He knows which ones make sense and which ones don't make sense. Like Rabbi Soloveitchik used to say in public every so often that how many tefillah he didn't, he didn't want to come to America. He wanted to stay in Europe with all the tzaddikim and all the chassidim. He said if his prayers would have been answered, if he would have said he would have been killed by the Nazis. He thanks HaKadosh Baruch that he didn't listen, didn't listen to his prayers. We always say, So if you have a holy tzadah like the Shalom, he composed the tefillah, so that's worthy of reciting. I'm going to make up my own tefillah. I can say stupid things. 
Right, right, absolutely. So if somebody comes to the Rosh Hashiv and says, I, I need a skula, a skula for Parnassah, Shidduch, health, Shalom Bayis, great children, what would the Rosh Hashiv uh, say? How can uh, somebody who is in need of any of those uh, boost the possibility that their tefillahs will be answered? Offer a tefillah, give a lot of tzedakah, give more tzedakah. Tzedakah is a school for everything. Tzedakah tatsalim avas, that's the biggest thing. Tzedakah tatsalim avas. And uh, another question, Rosh Shachter. If somebody has the kavana when doing some of the problematic schoolers that we talked about, for example, the, the red string, shlisl chala, instead of thinking that this string in of itself is going to ward off an ayin hara, or this shlisl chala is going to bring me a schooler for parnasa, they're going to say, this I have an intention, that this is a form of tefillah for me, that I am davening to Kodesh Baruch Hu, via this red string or the shlisl chala, this is really a sign to me that I'm asking a Kaddish Baruch Hu for, for a Parnassar and Ayin Hara. Can that kosher the, uh, the, the skula? Can it kosher the action? Or is this something that is that is possible gamre that even possibly proper kavanas can't take care of? I don't think a red string is a traditional way to represent tefillah. And we have a concept that you say the tefillah that's composed by the Anshik Nesak Doilam, Tarof with Shevach, Yandof with Hoido, in the middle you have the Bakosha. Then you add whatever the Bakoshas you want in the middle of the Shman Esrei. I don't think that Kasha is it. One of the boys asked Rabbi I remember one of the boys who was getting married asked Rabbi Salavechik that his mother-in-law wanted him to untie his shoelaces and untie his uh, the knot on his tie. When he marches down the aisle, Absalvechik first said, you don't have to do that. He didn't tell him that his mother-in-law wanted it. So he said, you don't have to do that. That uh, You shouldn't do it. It's an Isser, it's an Isser Nichosh. Then he said, what should I do? My mother-in-law wants me to do it. I said, okay, don't fight with your mother-in-law. Do it, but have in mind that absolutely meaningless. Okay. So, so you need two variables. You need a Shalom bias issue and the, the uh, negative Kavana having in mind in order to, to matir it. I think so. Okay, very good. Rav Shachter, we've covered so many issues. If I could try to recap and, and, and let me know if you agree with this or not. Uh, we have two schoolers. Number one is tefillah. Number two is tzedakah. Those are the mandated schoolers that we have. And mitzvahs. And mitzvahs. Tefillah, tzedakah, and mitzvahs. And otherwise, when looking at any of the other things that are viewed as skulas, we have to have a makor for it, be it the Gemara or a medrash, but anything more recent, maybe Rishonim, maybe maybe Rishonim, or but but if but, the Rishonim uh, had traditions from Midrashim, okay. But but uh, otherwise, we would say that more recent over the uh, since the closing of the Gemara, since the sealing of the Gemara and and the Midrashim, then uh, we do have a concern, even if people brought that down, uh, that uh, there there are uh, schoolers to issues. There's a real concern of Los Sinachashu and uh, possibly Chukas as well. Is is that a good synopsis of what we've covered? Yes. Correct, yes. Okay, terrific. Well, Rav Shachta, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure speaking with the Rosh Hashiva. Continue to have atzlacha. Okay. Thank you so much. You will. Joining us now is Rabbi Dr. Tzvi Ron. Rabbi Ron is a Rav at a number of yeshivas and seminaries in Yushalayim. He has a PhD in Jewish theology and has published multiple svarim. Also, he has published over 60 scholarly articles on numerous and oftentimes unusual and esoteric topics. He also has written on schoolas, our topic of the day. Rabbi Rowan, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be back. It's great to be back on the show. So thank you, Rabbi Rowan. It's good to have you. We are talking about schoolers in general, and I'd like to focus on a couple with you. 
and we'll go a little bit more in depth. I don't want to go too uh, too broad, but in depth, we'll go Be'iyun as opposed to Be'kiyas. And if we talk about the, the red bendels, the bracelets, the red bracelets that are so commonly given out, for example, when somebody goes to the Kosel, people are giving them out, of course, for raising funds and also the Schlissel Chala. If we could start with the red bendel, I'd love to hear uh, what you think about it. Is it really an effective skula for protection from Ayin Hara? Is there a Makor for that? Is there validity to it? Because if so, I'd love to invest and start uh, selling them as well on eBay and Amazon. But there are a lot of competitors already selling them. But why don't you tell us, is there a basis? Where does this come from? I'll tell you, people like to say that there's a Makor in the Tosefta for the red string. Tosefta Shabbos in the beginning of Parag of the Tosefta has a list of all kinds of things that are Darkei HaEmori, which are various that's the, the Chazal way of saying superstitious things that Jewish people are not supposed to do. Fun things in the list are shechting a chicken that crows like a rooster, uh, dancing in front of a pot to make the food cook better. And in that list also there is a chut adom al edzba'ot, to tie a red string around your finger. So there is a makor in the Tosefta, and that makor says this is a superstition that should be avoided. By now, now, just uh, does it mean it should be avoided or Darkie Amari says it's absolutely us or del right? You're right. You're right. You're right. It is something that is also for Jewish people to do. Jewish people are not supposed to be involved. This is one of the things that it's always supposed to separate the Jewish people from the rest of the world, that they do these kinds of things. This is the kind of nichush, these things that have no connection to reality, and we are supposed to not be involved in these kinds of things. But I want to give a background a little bit regarding this red string. Listen, you have the concept of an ayin hara is universal. It's it's in all kinds of countries, Europe, Asia, Africa, you have it all over the world, okay? And people came up with ways to avoid ayin hara all over the place. In Morocco, for example, if you want to avoid anti, if you want to avoid demonic forces, especially if you're about to get married and then you're the focus of attention, everyone's looking at you. So you make a, you put this henna stuff on your hands and sometimes on your feet. That's what they do in Morocco. Now, Jewish people in Morocco, that's what they grew up with. That's what everybody's doing there. Jews and non-Jews alike in Morocco. So therefore, Moroccans even today have a henna ceremony. There you go. Sometimes you see in people's homes to have a hand hanging up that they call a hamsa that's against Ayin Hala. Okay, well, Christians call it the hand of Mary and Arabs call it the hand of Fatma. And this is the hand that blocks Ayin Hara. It's you talk to the hand, right? It blocks. Sometimes you see a blue eye. Yes, a blue eye. That's even an emoji now, an anti-Ayin Hara thing, a blue eye. Sometimes you see that. Sometimes they put it in the middle of the hamsa. Why? I'll tell you why. Because in the Mediterranean area, people are dark. People have got dark hair, dark eyes. People have blue eyes. Everyone's looking at them. Whoa, blue-eyed person. And the fact that they're not dead obviously means that blue eyes are anti Ayanhara. Now, Jewish people who lived among these places, they picked up on it. Now, now, why did they pick up on it? I'll tell you why. Look, I'll tell you what I grew up with. People said, if you eat carrots, you're not going to need glasses. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't checked it. But the culture, you know, that's what they said. They would tell me an apple a day keeps the doctor away. I don't know the. I don't know if there's science behind that. But that was the science of the ancient world. Blue eyes keep away Ayanhar. 
red strings. And I'll tell you that folklore people, non-Jewish people investigated this. Why red strings? You know, red represents blood and vitality and life power, and that negates the ayin hara, which is, you know, death and anti-power, all this kind of business. And it's just a universal, goyish, worldly, anti-ayin hara thing. If I could just add one story, listen to this. I was on a family trip to Japan. We're going to Mount Fuji. And the, gu the guide lady says, listen, there's all kinds of ghosts and spirits Japanese people say you're at Mount Fuji. And she hands out a little bell on a red string to everybody on the bus. Because it's also a universal thing that if you make noises, then demons go away. They don't like noises, ghosts. And of course, it's on a red string. So I'm telling you, all over planet Earth, people are using red strings to make Ayin Haras go away. And Jewish people who lived among those people, they picked up the same thing. So in, in a nutshell, when it comes to the red bracelet, the red bandle, we have a Tosefta that says it's Dark Amori, which would be an Isser Midel Raisa. And we wow. have plenty of non-Jewish uh, individuals uh, involved in what seems to be a, a pagan or maybe not pagan but certainly a uh, nonsensical yeah it's, it's a yeah yeah it you know it has to do with like red represents like blood which represents life so that's like how it kind of works and if and you you know of course protection. yeah it's protection that's why you make like a circle around something you sometimes they have a finger like they would have you know put it around your finger put it around your arm yeah even in china i found this thing you put Red strings on babies' hands. In China, it's really far. So people are doing this all over the world. And even assuming they got it from us, they would have gotten it from the Tosefta, which says don't do it. Yeah, 100%. That's where the Jews got it from, from the Amori. Okay, so why don't we move forward to the Shlishel Chala? Now, I've uh, seen this come in two forms. The Shlishel Chala, it can be either inserting a metal key, a key into the Chala, or to make the Chala in the form of a key. I don't know if there are other forms. Those, two, those are the two that I've seen. Right. And this is of to be a school of four, Parnasa following Pesach. And the question is the same as we had for the Red Bendels. What's the source for this? Is there a source? for this and uh, is it something that is a proper practice or not now now you mentioned two ways to do it you either put a key in the bread or you make the bread in the shape of a key right now i'm going to tell you and now the whole audience will know both of these are the wrong way to do this custom now people who are big schlissel challah fans they say listen the hasidic source is right about this yes Okay, but you got to read those sources. Now, the earliest source of Pinchas Mikairitz, when he talks about this, and this is in the 1700s, he was a Talmud of the Baal Shem Tov. Now, I'm going to listen, all the audience will know now. It says like this, the Shabbat Achar HaPesach Osin Ke'en Matzot. We make our bread that we have, the Shabbos after Pesach, look like matzah. Now, now you know why? Because the Shabbos after Pesach, and Chutzlarz, it comes out all the time, is Shabbos Mavarchim of Er, and Pesach Sheni is coming up. Now, how do you make your, your, your bread look like a matzah? This is what he says. Menakvin, you make holes in the challah, bemafteyah, with a key. In other words, you are supposed to make, you know, those dotty things that you, you have in a matzah, those like perforation marks, whatever you call them, you make that with a key. And he says, Remez, what is this a remez to? That the gates are open until Pesach Sheini. My friends, listen. The whole 
Halaki thing is that you're supposed to simulate matzahs the first opportunity that you're eating challah because you're saying the gates, the, the geula might still happen. You know, we missed the Mashiach didn't come Pesach. There's no Beit HaMikdash built. Maybe Pesach Shani. We'll see what happens. It's all, of, and that's why it's not the Shabbos after Pesach. People say it's the Shabbos after Pesach, but I'll tell you something. It's not. It's Shabbos Mavarchem of Iyar because that's to do with matzah. If you look in Israel, sometimes it comes out that Shvishal Pesach is on a Friday and there's a Shabbos and then Shabbos Mavarchem, but you can't do it on that Shabbos because it's Shabbos of Mavarchem of Iyar. And if you look in all, all the original sources of this custom, it always has to, how do they always say it? Who do they say? The Apter Rebbe. He's the one that, that also puts in the Parnassah business. But how does he say? Listen how he says. Ta'am lemashe menakdin et halechem. What's lenaked? Lenaked. To make dots. To make dots on the bread with the key. That's what you're supposed to do. Now, now I know that you're saying, what's going on with this dots on a key business? Now, I'm going to explain to you. Here, I'm going to show you. And maybe they'll put this in the Mari Makaimos. Look at this picture. You see this picture here? What does that look like? It looks like a matzah. This is bread. Now, there's an old, old custom to make dots and holes in bread. It's called docking. Docking, you look it up, it's a bakery term. Why do you do it? To make sure that there's no air pockets in the bread. You don't want those like under the crust. Anyone who's eaten a pizza, you know what we're talking about, that those bubbles under the crust. If you don't want the bubbles, you make dots in the bread or holes in the bread. So the, and it looks like a matzah. So this is all, all the original sources say this. Even if you look at Tamea Min Hagim, which is from the late 1800s, and everyone says, look, he even writes it 100%. What does he write? Tam Lemashe Menak Din HaChala. He says, you make dots on the challah. Okay, you use a key, but it has nothing to do with the shape of a key. There's no such thing. I'm telling you, all the people out there, this is why no one is making a good living because they're doing, it's not even the right school. Now I'm going to explain to you. Now, now you're going to say, so what happened? What happened that everyone started making the, first of all, it's the internet. Because you know, when you grew up, was anybody making key chalas? When I grew up, I grew up in Brooklyn. I lived near Bar Park. I never heard of this key challah business until just a couple of years ago. Because on Facebook, everyone's putting pictures of their challahs in the shape of a key, which is very, very fine, fine. But the thing is, I'll tell you what happened. In the late 1700s, you know what Jewish people started to do also? They started making challahs that were twisted. That's when twisted challahs started happening. Before that's that, the braiding. That's the braiding. Braiding, braiding. yeah, yeah, braiding. Before that, challahs were round. Now, once you start braiding challahs, then the whole popping thing is not a thing anymore, right? That's what the flat kind of breads you do it. So then already in the late 1800s and early 1900s, you see some people start writing, you make it in the shape of a key. But the whole thing is, I mean, that, that has nothing to do with anything, right? It's supposed, it's supposed to look like a matzah. That's the whole point. It's supposed to look like a matzah with the added cool bonus of, uh, what do you call it? Of, of that you use the key to it to, as if to open the gates of the geula. That's the original thing. But So, so there are three three differences between what the original minog was and nowadays. Number one is the form of the quote-unquote bread or the matzah. It should be matzah, not challah, not bread. That's number yeah. one. 
Number yeah. two is using a key to make holes in it. Otherwise, That's what you're supposed to do, yeah. do that. And yeah. number three is the timing of it. When it's done, it's not Shabbos after Pesach. It's to be done uh, Shabbos Mavarachim. Right. So you know what happened? People lost the connection between Pesach Sheni. It originally was a Pesach Sheni vibe. And you also know, if you look in the, in the sources of eating matzah on Pesach Sheni, you ever go to Yeshiva? And then the Chadar Ochel on Pesach Sheni, there's always that sad box of Shmura matzah that got left over that the Bachram are eating. That, the Hasidim, that's a Hasidisha thing. That's really the Hasidim make a big deal about it. The Hasidim make a big deal about matzah after Pesach. Also, there's a parallel custom that the Shabbos Mavarchim of Iyar, they, they call it Gela Matzah or Geula Matzah, that you have, you use Matzah as Lechem Mishnah on Shabbos. So it's a lot of vibes of continuing the Matzah trend. That's what it really, really is. And everyone, I don't know what to say. Now, I know people like to say, this is a pagan thing. A hundred percent it's pagan because the pagans, it's true that we do have evidence that they made key-shaped bread as well, but they made all kinds of shaped bread. They also made ladder-shaped bread. You know, some people like to do that for Hoshana Rabbah, even today. Yeah, and here I found there's a nice book that everyone could look up. If you want to look up the sacred language of the Valak bread. Now, the Valaks are people who are from like the Romania area. And if you look there on page 38, you can see a nice black key bread. Here you go. This is supposed to look like a key. You'll put this in the Mari Makoma. You got to use your imagination a little bit, but it looks, you know, it looks like something. I mean, you know, so there you go. So, but everyone, you know, they were making hearts, you know, you know, going and making hearts on Valentine's Day, all kinds of stuff they were doing, you know, whatever they want to do. But but really, originally, it's supposed to look like matzah. If you want to even do the skula, you know, I'm just saying you got the whole thing is, is just, you know, goofy. It's goofy. That's what happened here. I don't even want to say I would say that this thing aspires to be Darkeha Amori. You know what I mean? It's a, it's but it, a, didn't, it didn't make it. It's just a it, mistake. Yeah, it's just a mistake. The whole thing is a mistake. I mean, it's crazy. You read people saying, oh, this is an old custom. And, and but if you, they always say Menakvin or Menakdin. That's always what everybody's saying. You make holes till you get to the Mamish. I found it in. Oh, I found it in this book, Sefer Mata'amim. It made it to the last page of this book from 1910 in the Hashmatot. And there he finally writes, you either, you could also make it in the shape of, of a, that's 1910. Come on, 1910. You know, anyway, yeah. That's right. So Rabbi Ron, we, we've been through the, uh, the red string. We went through the Shlishel Chala. Yes. Came to the red string. Dark Amori, when it came to the Shlishel Chala, a mistake, a mistake. Yeah, this is a mistake. Maybe worse. If I could just uh, keep you for, for a few more minutes, I, yeah. nothing came to mind. I, I see some people in Shul when it comes to Hagba. So uh, during the Hagba time, they point out their pinkies. And I wonder if that's a school. Oh, my goodness. What's so listen, the basis for that? Okay, so first I want to give you a little background. So I there was a person I know, very close to me, and he said, we made Shlissel Chala for the first, you know, time this year. And I said, why would you do that? It's not in your family. It's not a thing. He says, it's fun. So, so there you go. That's why people are doing this. You know, it just as if it's fun. My friends, listen, this pinky finger business, kind of the same thing. If you look in the Shulchan Aruch and you say, 
What is the Shulchan Aruch say you're supposed to do during Hagva? Shulchan Aruch in Kufla Medalit, he says, You show the, the, the letters of the Torah. And then what do the, what do the people do? They lichroa. Lichroa, yeah, they bow down and they say Zota Torah. Very nice. Okay. So that's what you're supposed to do. You look at the Torah, you bow down. If you look in, if you want to really look for for how it says in Sefer Nechemia and Parakhet, how they did it, which is what this is based on, you could also lift up, you lift up your hands and bow down. That's what you do. Now you say, so what happened with pinky finger? So this is hilarious because look, if you look in the in, in Piske Chuvot, which is actually really a very, very good sefer, but here he writes, listen, Some people have the custom to point with a pinky finger. He says, Mekorok Hadmon. It's an ancient source. Okay. Now you look in the footnote. I wonder what that ancient source is, you know? Okay. The ancient source is Yalkut Me'am Lo'ez. Okay. By Rav Yaakov Kuli from the 1700s. You know, this Ladino work. Okay. You know, Turkish work. Fantastic. But the thing is that it's on Parashat Kitavo in Yalkut Me'am Lo'ez. Now, Parashat Kitavo was not written by Rav Yaakov Kuli. Rav Yaakov Kuli died in 1732. He did not complete Yalkut Ma'am Lo'ez. So this part actually was written by Rav Shmuel Kreuzer, who died in 1997. And this was published in 1968. So the first, that's a Makor Kadmon. I mean, I was born in 68. I'm not that old, you know. I'm, you know, I, so... So, but because it's in Yalkut Ma'am Lo'ez and people don't understand that parts of it were written by different people over time, they're like, oh, it must be an old Sparty Turkish custom. It's not at all. It is not. Now people say, so why is everyone doing it? You ask any human being, why are they doing it? What are they all going to say? Because I saw other people doing it in shul. Yeah, that's why. That's why you do it. Okay, so the, no one, was anyone taught in yeshiva? Listen, my bracham, and you see it. No, no one has ever taught that. No one has ever. Now, where does this come from? I believe is that there's something that the Be'er Hetev brings that the Arizal, Hayamistakel Hetev, the Arizal would look at the letters of the Torah during Hagba and he would be so that he would be able to read them. And there was, uh, it says there's an orgadol, like you get, let's call it a good spiritual uh, energy from being able to see the letters of the Sefer Torah during Hagba. My feeling is that what happened was, so what's going to happen in shul during Hagba? People want to do this. They're going to, you know, crowd, you know, rush to the bima. I think that there's people like me when I can't see something and it's far away, you know, when they ask me to read the eye chart, like I put my finger like, all right, you know, let me try to see. Now, listen, now I'm going to, this is a little bit PG-13, but you know that, you know, certain, you, you know, like when you were a kid, your mother says, it's not polite to point. Yes. And there's a lot of Mekorot like that. Even Sefer in Yishayahu, Perak Nun Chet, they talk about bad people are the Shlach Edzba, Shlach Edzba, that the Radak say they point to people, it's violent to go like this. That's violent. You know, if you finger in somebody's face with the index finger. So you can't point to the toe with your index finger. That's just rude. And then there's other fingers, even more rude. So, so there's not many options for pointing. So, so we, so basically, the pinky is perceived as like a cute, inoffensive finger, and that's what happened over here. But I think it originated with people trying to sort of make out a letter. And then, of course, everyone gives nice explanations. Uh, pinky represents humility. Whatever they want, you know, these new kind of things. 
but that's a very ancient custom from 1968. So there you go. I will tell you in the audience, people should ask their grandparents or great grandparents of their Zoha if when they were growing up, they ever saw such a thing. I remember I asked my grandfather who grew up in Hungary. He says he never saw such a thing until he came to America, you know, and he never saw such a thing before. All right, there you go. So it's so, another, I would say, goofy thing. So so we, we've gone through three, and maybe we can uh, get a generalization, a concept to take out of this. We've talked about the red string, dark Yamoni. We're talking about the Shlissel Chala mistake. And we've talked about the pinky, basically a, a baseless act that people are doing nowadays. Yeah. Well, what's a message that we can take? Because uh, if we look into some of the uh, minhagim yeah. that we have, they may not be appropriate and proper. So uh, what can we learn from this? The, the message is that you can't just copy things. And certainly the motivating factor of because this is fun is not something I would say that you know should be a driving force in, in why we do things that should be halachic acts, especially if the Shulchan Aruch tells you what to do during Hagba. But a guy's like, nah, nah, you know, thank you, of Yosef Cairo. With all due respect, a pit, this is much more fun for me to raise my pinky. It's like, wait a second, the Shulchan Aruch has what to say about this. And I'm saying that even if you respect Hasidic sources and you're interested in what they have to say in the symbolism, well, then look it up. Read what they have to say about it and then do it instead of saying, Oh, you know, this is like a good luck key bread. Like, what What are we talking about here? I mean, I don't know. It's, it's just, you know, it, it's just silliness. It just shows, it, 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 it's, it's a sad state that the Jewish people who are supposed to be an orlegoyim are actually acting in a way that doesn't really, it's not like people of the book vibes that we're giving off when we do these kinds of things. Uh, thank you, Rabbi Ron, Rabbi Dr. Ron. Thank you so much. It's nice to go into depth in some of these areas that we are here yeah. on the show. And we uh, greatly appreciate your uh, your your wisdom and knowledge always. Thank you so much for joining. So thank you. Thank you for having me on. Joining us now is Rabbi Simon Jacobson. Rabbi Jacobson is a renowned speaker, educator, and mentor to thousands. He is also the author of the best-selling book, Toward a Meaningful Life, and he also heads the Meaningful Life Center. Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for joining us. It's my great pleasure and honor to be here with you and your wonderful audience. Uh, thank you so much. I have a very basic question to start with. What is a schooler? How do you define what a schooler is? I think you ask different people, they'll give you different answers. I'll try to respond from a Torah point of view. You know, there's a verse, for instance, it says, where God says about the Jewish people, you shall be a zgula for me, essentially a good sign or auspicious representative. So on a very general term, the word zgula can mean something simply like we say, it's an auspicious time, an opportune time, an opportune moment, an opportune event. Basically, every holiday, Yom Tov or Shabbos is a Yom Zgula in that sense. On the other end of the spectrum, Zgulas also people associate with like a uh, amulet, a type of uh, a good omen or a bad omen. There are bad Zgulas as well. It's things that when you do a certain action or a certain object that can bring you good fortune. I, I, some people would call it good luck. In Judaism, we sometimes call mazel, like the, maz, the month of Adar is considered a healthy mazel for the Jewish people, mazel of dogim, of fish, mazel that represents joy. So there are 
elements in Judaism that there are times and spaces that are considered asman's gula or yom's gula or an activity that um, we'll call it like channels more blessings. But it's important to always so, and I'm sure this is what we're going to talk about, to not, there's only one God. And God is the one that blesses us. That's why I began with the verse, Vayisam Nizgula, that is God that blesses us. And at the same time, God and Hashem did create different moments and events and objects that have particular gulas, particular uh, called features or personalities that can make life uh, more blessed or God forbid the opposite. So if I have a, an amulet, a kmei or an object, something of good fortune, does that work? Are these things effective? If we say I have a skula for parnasa, a skula to avoid ayin har and the like, are these things effective in themselves? If I do the skula, it's going to really help me in the area that I need help in. So look, our sages, Chazal, have spoken about this. It's not the first time the question has been asked. And they are very inter- they're very careful in creating a balance. Because what you want to avoid is what we would call superstition. Things that are based on, on uh, just people like something exotic. Like they think you do a certain zgula. Like the, the, the famous anecdote goes, someone came to a Kabbalist and said he heard it's a zgula for shalom bias, meaning harmony at home, to um, fold his talus right after Havdalah. Right after Shabbos stands, you make Havdalah to fold the talus as a zgula for shalom bias. And the Kabbalist responded, it's Rabbi Greenglass, actually, from Montreal. He was a known Kabbalist. And his response is, a bigger school is for you to go wash the dishes after Shabbos. So it has to be always taken with a certain grain of salt, because in Judaism, you want to be careful. There's the verse, Tomim Tim Hashem Alekecha, which means go straight, go simple with your God. And there's actually, it, it, it's forbidden in many ways to uh, rely on an amulet or an object. Some people even say it's borderline idolatry. So when the Rishenim, the Radbaz and others, they talk about this, um, and it's pretty easy to find online, they always will say, yes, there are things that have a zgula, but it's more like a predisposition. It doesn't control your life and don't depend on it. Because at the end of the day, when you read the Rambam, when he talks about how idolatry uh, evolved, it first began as seeing objects that God endowed with certain powers. But you have to always remember the only powerful one is God. The fact that he's giving us, like for example, is a mezuzah, a zgula. You say a mezuzah is protects, protects a home. So there is a zgula element, but what is inside the mezuzah? It's holy verses of the Torah. So at the end of the day, it's Hashem is telling us, here's a mitzvah that I'm telling you that has the zgula, has the, the feature that it can help protect. Now, there are, there are definitely different customs out there and different approaches. I come from the middle path, which means there are definitely objects, if it says in the Torah that a certain type of activity or a certain amulet or certain verses are as gula for ariches yomim, for long life, for health, for a pregnant woman, for other, for, uh, other blessings. If there's a source in the Torah that says so, obviously we have a source. But number one, to create our own things, that's obviously off limits. And even those things have to always understood that it should be seen as a keli. You're making a keli. Hashem says, make a keli, make a vessel for my channels to manifest. Right, not, so- to, uh, not to associate it with more power than it really has. So when we're talking about a school, uh, 
um, that has a source, that has a core, and that'll be our measuring stick. Is it something that is valid or not valid? When we talk about a makor, does it have to be specifically something in the Torah? Can it be in a chazal? Can it be in a rishon? Can it be in an achron? Because we even in the achron, and we have certain quote-unquote schoolers that didn't exist at the time of the rishonim. So is that a, a valid makor for us, or does it have to be something that is uh, a little bit older than the time of the achronim? I think as long as it's a person who's considered to be a Torah authority, whether it's halachic authority or Kabbalist, and is accepted, not someone that nobody knows, that just came up with something. There are sforim, very legitimate ones, that are called sifres gula. They bring different gulas for different uh, situations. So I think it goes like to, like anything. There is the written Torah, there's the oral Torah, and there's the traditions that have been passed on. It could be Rishenim and Nachreinim. But even when you find a Zgula, I think everyone knows that don't over-rely on it. Like some people's life, they're not looking for a job. Instead of looking for a job, they're looking for a Zgula for a job. You have to combine also common sense. Like Yaakov Avinu, he prepared to meet Esav. He prepared for war. Okay. He prepared a bribe. And he uh, prayed to Hashem. You have to be prudent. So anything that comes from a legitimate safer, Rishen or Achren, is acceptable, but again, with a, with a, with a certain, uh, in moderation. Right. So you mentioned that you're more in the, in the middle path and there are some that are more uh, to the right, to the left, whatever the right and, and the left is here. So what would you say are certain sects of, uh, of Orthodox Jewry that has stronger belief in schoolers? Would we say, is that, is, is it more of a Hasidic thing? Chabad, what's the take of Chabad on schoolers? Who would you say is more involved in it and who is less involved in it? I think um, some of the people who are connected more to the mystical tradition, like some Sephardic, uh, Sephardic communities have, I think, Zgulas seem to be more prominent there. Um, Chabad, actually, Chabad is quite skeptical with Zgulas. Because remember, the Alter Rebbe, the, the, the founder of Chabad, was a, he was called a Shulchan, you know, he wrote a Shulchan, compiled the Shulchan Aruch. So there's the other side to him, which is not the, the Hasidic, the Kabbalistic side, is that... Um, We'll call halachically grounded. So Chabad, I think, is somewhat, uh, I would say, more balanced. I, I don't know if there's any uh, communities. I think, as I said, the Sephardim, some more. I think in Kabbalah, you will find more Zgulis. But look, there are things that we do. Look, look what the Beis Yosef says about, for example, Kaparis. He is completely dismissive of taking a chicken and that we do Erev Yom Kippur for atonement. You know, and, and people who follow Beis Yosef are very adamantly against it. Um, you know, he dismisses it altogether. On the other hand, you find the Ramah and you find others that did not have that attitude. So you have sometimes, you know, the Rambam, for example, is completely negates the concept of shadim, of uh, of demons and stuff like that. Talk about Ayin Hara, for example. So we say Ayin Hara. Some people say that Ayin Hara affects only those that believe in it. Interesting twist. In other words, we sometimes give power to something that shouldn't have so much power. So I don't know if I can really delineate which community. I think all communities have some zgulis, um, and and some communities are are more prone toward that. Being when I say middle, I'll tell you what I mean. I think everything has to be grounded with um, a rational a Torah approach because I find the problem is the other way around. I think people who are desperate or are needy sometimes over-rely on Zgulis when they should be doing other things. That's what I'm being very careful of because when you begin to over-rely on it not necessarily can go the wrong direction. That's what I mean by moderation and balance. But I think everyone would agree with that, any Torah person, 
But there are, they're definitely, I mean, you go to Eretz Yisrael, you'll see they give you the red strings. You know, people have the red strings around their hands. Some people laugh at it. Some people consider it as gula. I mean, there are some sources, but it's also been commercialized. So there is room for some skepticism. I would, again, look at everything in a very balanced way. Right. And, and the Lababich Rebbe himself, did he hold by schoolers? Certain zgulas that, that he received, that he heard, yes. But no, but in general, if people wrote to him about zgulas, he was more or less, uh, say, dismissive or definitely skeptical. He didn't, you know, like, for example, when anyone wrote to the Rebbe, my child is um, is misbehaving, maybe there's some type of curse, maybe there's some zgula. The Rebbe was always dismissive of that. He says, no, do Torah, keep mitzvahs, do it with joy, and don't try to find some some mysterious force in your life. And in that sense, he definitely did not look at the zgulas. Schools that were taught, were so-called became part and parcel of mainstream Judaism is, of course, part of, you, know, you find in Shulchan Aruch. For example, some people, when before they drink a cup of water, they spill it out a bit. It says in Shulchan Aruch, because there was a time where it could have some toxins. So even though today we know that no serpent has probably tasted from that water, but since it's a minute, some people continue to do that. Some people, when they sneeze, they touch their air. Um, uh, I think the Rebbe may have done that. But that's something that he grew up with his child, but it's, again, not saying, you know, you touch the ear and that's going to save your life. It's part of like somewhat called minig Yisrael, that some minhagim that became part and, part and parcel of our lives. And uh, I think it's case by case. I don't know if there's a... Uh, the Babich Rebbe was very, very into the, the Tomim Tim Hashem Alekecha. Don't go to, uh, don't go to um, fortune tell and uh, to people who are looking psychics or people are going to read your palm, even though in Torah there is the concept of interpreting dreams and palm reading, but don't over-rely on that. So the concept that was generally more or less um, frowned upon, let's put it that way. Right. Now, what, what was the concept of giving out the dollar bills? And I'll ask it twofold. Number one was the giving by the Rebbe. What was the concept there? And the recipients, did they view that as a school of, for example, people who received the dollars, did they frame it? Do they still keep it until today as maybe a school of for, for protection yeah. or that the Rebbe is there with them? A good question. Very good question. From the Rebbe's point of view, he was trying to encourage Zdoka by basically giving a dollar and and either give that dollar or it's an exchange another dollar for charity. It wasn't meant to be giving you a dollar to hang up on your wall. It's because at 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 the, at at the best is you can keep the dollar because you received it from the Reb. I'll talk about that in a moment. But the main thing was to encourage that you give a dollar or more to charity. And indeed, they did do that. I know millions and millions of dollars, you know, just created. I remember my little boy when he was a little child. He once went by the Rebbe and the Rebbe. Uh, gave him a dollar, and he pulled out of his pocket a coin and gave it to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe gave this broad smile. And that was the, it was accomplishing its mission that the Rebbe was trying to encourage people to be givers. So let's start with that. The second thing that I would point out, Zdoka is a Zgula. It says, for example, when a person is in danger, Zdoka tatsel memovis, that Zdoka saves from death. When you help another, that's like a Zgula that opens up the door that God will help you. And it even says, God says, this is the only mitzvah you can test me on. Usually you don't test God with a mitzvah. But here God says, Give charity to help others and you'll see it will help you. So there's that second element. The third aspect is people seeing the Rebbe as a tzaddik. And he's giving you an object, a dollar that belonged to him, he's giving it to you. So many people saw it like somewhat, I wouldn't call it sacred as in the God, not comparing it to a to tefillin, but a certain zgul in the sense, you know, I want this dollar that I received from the Rebbe, maybe it'll be a bracha for uh, 
for Parnassah, for other things. So people do hold, did hold on to the dollars and replaced it, as I said, by giving Zdokah. That was a requirement. The Rebbe made that very clear. I'm not giving you a dollar to keep. Some way give to another, whether you... But the keeping of the dollar, I would say, goes in the category that you're describing of a type of skula. Um, I think different Chabadniks probably had different attitudes to it. Some really held on to it like for their dear life. I know others that actually gave those dollars away later to others as a gift, um, but they saw it as a blessing. It's like uh, similar to the, you see by Hasidim, some Hasidish Tishin, they grab Shirayim at the end of the meal or end of the, the Fabrengen or the Kiddush, they'll grab Shirayim. What's Shirayim? Shirayim are leftovers of the, of the Rebbe or the Tzaddik's meal. Piece of cake, a crumb piece of cake, some of the wine, called Koshal Brocha. Like when the Rebbe would give out Koshal Brocha after... Uh, Havdalah, after benching on a yomtiv, he would give a koisha bracha. So koisha bracha is a form of a zgula. It's a koisha bracha. It's a koisha that has special blessings, similar to when we drink the wine after sheva brachas. So the shiraim is a similar idea. The tzaddik's meal, you're partaking in part of it. And it has what we would call in, in Hasidic terminology, it has d- divine sparks that a tzaddik touched or a tzaddik made a bracha on. So you feel it's a zgula that you should eat from that uh, you know, I know people buy weddings. In Chabad, for example, will try to get a shirt or an object that the Rebbe wore, a yarmulke or a shirt to wear by the chuppah. You know, it's like wearing the lavush of a tzaddik with the, with the objective being that it channels somewhat more blessings in your life. So you have that concept. You know, people who inherit a walking stick or a cup or a kos from a tzaddik or even, I mean, it has sentimental value as well, but sometimes even a great-grandfather, you may have something you inherited. It has more value than just another uh, heirloom. It has a certain value. It's held by a tzaddik. He made a bracha on it, and so on. You know, we have stories like that where the tzaddik spent time. That place became somewhat sanctified. That concept definitely exists. Interesting. If I could end off with a personal question for you. What, what school list do you do, Rabbi Jacobs? And what do you do? And what do you recommend to others if people come to you and say, I'm having a tough time with Parnassa or children or whatever the issue is? What do you personally do? And what do you recommend to others to do saying, this is a school? I recommend this one. You're putting me on the spot here. I, I, I generally don't like to share my own uh, little private little, uh, I guess, idiosyncrasy <laughs> of schools. You probably picked up that I'm somewhat skeptical uh, about schools. I'm not a big schooler guy, but I want to make this very clear. This does not mean I don't recommend it to others, and I will never tell someone. You know, everyone, I think, has to figure out what works for them, which means as long as it's within Mizgeris, within the structure and framework of Torah and Halacha, it's a zgula that we mentioned earlier that's brought in a Sefer. I am the last person, God forbid, what I tell someone that zgula is not something you should do. Personally, I don't have many zgulas, to be honest. Um, I, I try to believe that God works his way by giving me intelligence and emotions. I feel those are part of my zgulas. There's the faculties and the gifts God blessed me with. Why is that less of a zgula than an amulet? And I try to follow what the Torah says. I'm trying to think of something that would stand out. Um, look, I do the customs that we all do when we make havdalah, for example. You know, after the havdalah, you dip the candle into the wine, and then you take it from the wine, you put it over your eyebrows and back of your neck in my pockets. That's considered somewhat of a zgula, but I think many, many of us do that. Um, I'm trying to think. So mine are probably, probably pretty more much mainstream. I don't have any unique... Um, stuff that I really can point out. I'm thinking of things that I picked up in my life. You know, again, I, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I never even thought about it much. As far as other people goes, I'll say the following. I, if someone is very strong about a certain zgula, 
and they really are in a situation where nothing else has worked, and it says gula al pitara, then I'd be I definitely encourage them. What I'm wary of is when that person sees, I see they're not being responsible in what they should be doing. Instead of going to the doctor to deal with a medical situation, they're doing a gula. That I will always discourage. I'll say, you want to do this gula, fine, but but the Torah also says nitn reshus You have to go to a doctor. You know, the doctor says you have to take a, a Tylenol or a Advil to get rid of a, her- a headache. Again, I'm not talking about their side effects or there's other factors involved. So you have to keep a balance because I see people sometimes, they turn to the sensational instead of to the Tomim Tiyim Hashem Alekecha. But if a person has that balance, by all means, you know, a lot of people go to visit the Ohel of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Now that is considered somewhat of a zgula. What does it mean? We know that the Tzadik's burial place has, it's a Mokam Kaddish. We know Kolov went to the Maras HaMachpele to pray. We know over the generations, people go to Miran and Lagba Omer. And even among the Litvisha world, which may frown upon some of these, everybody has certain things that they do that they consider to be somewhat of a zgula. So I think anything that's been time-tested, by all means. And um, and I just, again, keep the balance. That's how I would advise it. Okay, so if I could recap three points. Number one, any zgula you do has to be alpitora. If there's not a source for it, don't do it. It's likely nichush. That's number one. N- number two is... Put in your hishtadlis. Don't use the skula as an excuse not to put in your effort. And number three, be realistic, be responsible, and don't use that skula as an excuse to not do what you should be doing. Absolutely. Well well summed up. Excellent. I think that's its role. And it's and with that, by all means. Remember, Hashem works Hashem works in many mysterious ways. I tell people sometimes the answer may come to you from a cab driver that you're sitting with. Why do you know how Hashem wants to answer? It's not always going to be one way. And you have to really be open to hear how the blessings will shower upon you. Rabbi Jacobson, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's uh, been two years since we've had you last time, and I hope we don't wait so long for the next one. It's a pleasure. Your questions were great, and I really appreciate being here, and I hope they're helpful. And let's absolutely, I'm with you. Let's do it again soon. Thanks so much.